everybody. Welcome to Every Nation. So glad you've decided to join us this morning. Uh, just a quick heads up, we're going to be doing communion at the end of the sermon today. So if you want to grab some bread and some juice to have with you, <clears throat> now would be a good time to do so. And we'll take that together uh, at the end of the sermon. So we're going to be, um, it's our second last week in Esther this week. And we're going to be going through chapters 5 to 7. And this is a fun part. This is where uh, Esther kind of puts her plan in motion. And she uh, she goes and makes the request of the king. But I think there's a lot we can learn from this because uh, it's we've, we've been talking a lot uh, over the last bunch of weeks about how God's hidden in this story and how his glory is. you got to kind of comb through and look because God's not even mentioned in this book really explicitly and he just seems to be working through people and working through their faith. Last last week we talked about uh, proactive faith and this week what I, what I want to uh, sort of hone in on is this idea that faith seems to be this culmination of us uh, working in tandem uh, with God, but in kind of a, but in a way that requires kind of a fancy word, and we've used this before in sermons, and maybe you're picking it up on it by now, but it's called dialectic theology. And what it means is, is that two things can be 100% true at the same time. And this is a very important theological principle. It's kind of nerdy, I know, but it is important to understand that, and this story really exp- expresses it well, that our faith is 100% us choosing to trust God. We choose with our entire hearts. That's 100% our responsibility. But then God comes along and fulfills our faith with 100% of his own power and presence and does things we could never do. And the best way to try to explain this is that let's say you took a took a marriage. You, you're giving 100% of yourself to each other. And it's it and it, it's the it's the beauty of giving 100% of yourself that creates this beautiful relationship. And so God longs to do the same thing, where there's things that we can't do, but there's things that He does long for from us to form a relationship, and to form something that lasts. So this is going to be a good um, uh, chunk of scripture here to go through to really unpack. Okay, uh, Esther has some faith, yes, but you'll see in this passage how much God has is doing and has done, and has seemingly orchestrated to prove some really significant points that we'll get to later. So, uh, I want to remind you about what we talked about last week. And I want to remind you of one um, little piece of the story uh, where Haman, uh, sorry, Mordecai, Mordecai, uh, what Mordecai challenges Esther to see her position as queen as a divine appointment. Uh, and he kind of suggests to Esther and says, you know what, maybe Esther... You've wound up in this position because God wants to use you to save our whole race, the whole Jewish race that's in captivity in Babylon right now. Um, He wants to use you to save the whole race from Haman's plan to destroy all the Jews because Haman hated Mordecai. And we talked about about, um, recognizing the racism of, of Haman a few weeks ago and how he took his hatred against Mordecai and extrapolated it to a whole people group. It's just terrible. And so Mordecai is suggesting Esther... Maybe, uh, maybe you're here for such a time as this, is the famous line. Uh, but there's other, something else I want to remind you of, is that what, what Mordecai says, is he says, uh, uh, you, like God is going to save his people. He's made a promise, he doesn't say this explicitly, but you can, you can, you can hear it in his language, that uh, he says, you know, God will save the Jews. Like, even if it's not from you, he's going to save them. Uh, but you're going to be, de- don't, do you want to be destroyed along with them? Like you, you have a chance to save yourself and our people, 
Because God for sure will save his people. He's made a covenant with Abraham. And I can imagine Mordecai going, I don't know how he's going to do that if it's not you. Seems like a pretty good setup for you to do it. But one thing I do know, Mordecai speaking, is that God will come through. So thankfully, Esther acts. And she says, you know what? If I perish, I perish. I'm going to do this. I'm going to step forward. I'm going to believe in this, you know, covenant that, you know, Yahweh saves. And uh, I'm going to move forward with with being perhaps God's instrument uh, to save our people. So this is where we have this, now this moment where Esther puts her plan in motion. And we start to see God doing a whole bunch of things and divinely orchestrating a lot of things. So I'm just going to paraphrase the story. We'll read a little bit of it because it is three chapters. Last week we read the whole chapter because it was just one chapter, but we've got three today. So I'm just going to jump around a little bit and paraphrase it for you. Um, And right off the bat, you know, Esther, Esther starts and she approaches the king, which is already a very dangerous thing to do. And we can already see that God just has favor on her. And uh, if we we go Esther five, uh, verses two and three, When the king uh, saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. So already that's a, that's like a phew kind of moment. People get killed for doing what Esther just did by approaching the king in his court uh, without being invited. And so already there's just favor on, uh, on Esther as she starts to execute this plan which I think is interesting. So she makes a request of the king and says, would, would you and Haman please come to a, with a, bank, to, a, to a banquet that I've prepared for you tonight? And everything seems to be going fine. And the king asks her again, you know, what would you have me do up to half my kingdom at this banquet she's prepared? They both come. And uh, she says, you know what? Um, this is my request. Come to another banquet tomorrow night. Now this is interesting. And I, I was doing a little bit of reading on this. It's not really obvious why Esther doesn't just kind of... The, the, the moment seemed right for her to just ask right there to say, look, I'm a Jew and Haman has had this plot to kill my people. Like she, she could have just said it there, but she doesn't. She waits a day. And there's lots of theories about, you know, it aligning with a Hebrew festival from back in the day. And there's some people just think she lost her nerve. <laughs> I like to think God had a plan and it just wasn't time. And God wanted to do some things. And a lot of stuff happens in the next day between the two banquets. A bunch of stuff. Uh, it, chiefly, God sets up this, he sets up this scene that creates poetic justice for Haman, who has a plot to destroy, you know, all the Jews. He has this poetic, poetic justice. Haman goes away from the first banquet and goes home, starts bragging to his whole family about what's going on. On his way home, he sees Mordecai again, who doesn't stand to honor Haman yet again. It enrages him again, further reminding Haman of his hatred for Mordecai and his people. Uh, And then, you know, he starts telling his family about this, like, oh, this Mordecai guy, I got to do something about this. And then his family says, you know, why don't you go? Why don't you go to the king and uh, ask that Haman be, uh, ask that Mordecai be executed? And why don't you set up a a pole and you can impale him on it. And why don't you use your favor with the king? Because Haman had a lot of favor with the king. Why don't you use that favor to ask uh, King Xerxes to just, you know, destroy Mordecai? So Haman thought this was a pretty good plan. So uh, he uh, he starts to, he, he sets up a pole, you know, to, it's quite morbid. Uh, you know, the Assyrian Empire was a brutal place, but for, for Mordecai to be impaled on. Uh, meanwhile, uh, in a dream, that same night after the first banquet, the king... Uh, is, uh, oh, sorry, the king can't sleep 
And he asks, you know, his scribes to come and read sort of, I don't know, the latest of what's going on in his kingdom. And what pops out in that reading is the fact that a few chapters earlier, Mordecai was the one who exposed an assassination plot on King Xerxes. Uh, And the king never actually found out about it. And Mordecai was a little chapped about it, actually. But, you know, years have passed and the king never actually noticed that Mordecai was the one who exposed the assassination plot. So the king goes, has this Mordecai person ever been honored? And his scribes go, no, nothing's been done for him. Uh, so that happens. And then the next day, so it's, it, this is this is funny. It's almost like it's, it's very comedic. The king comes to work. I don't know what a king does, but he comes to the palace thinking, I got to honor this Mordecai guy. Haman comes to the king that same morning with this request of wanting to kill Mordecai. <laughs> like, what are the odds of this? And so this, it's, it's a really funny little scene where uh, Haman comes in and goes, um, you know, uh, what would you, you know, the king says to Haman, what, what should be done for, for this man who needs to be honored? And Haman goes, oh, he must be talking about me. And so then Haman goes off and says, well, this is what I think should be done. Uh, and Haman starts suggesting, you know, I'd like to be paraded through this city. I'd like to be... Uh, you know, shown to be the greatest in all your kingdom next to you, of course. He starts making all these big requests. The whole time, King Xerxes is thinking that Haman is suggesting that the king do this for Mordecai, not for Haman. And so the king goes, I like this plan. You know that Mordecai guy? I'd like you to do that for him. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai, the man that he hates, through the streets in a plan... (laughs) In a plan to honor, at least he thought he was going to be honoring himself, but no, he's honoring Mordecai, the guy he hates. And the poetic justice just goes on. Uh, that Later that night, um, later that night, they go to the second banquet that Haman and the king were, were, were um, supposed to go to. And that's when Esther says, look, I am a Jew and uh, Haman has, uh, you know, Haman has, has this plot to kill my people. The king is enraged. Uh, Haman ends up getting impaled on the pole that he set up to kill Mordecai. Again, so brutal. But more poetic justice. Uh, And this is really interesting to me. This story is fascinating. God's doing all this stuff. There's this delay in the banquet for some reason, and then all these things happen. That uh, The things that happen between those two days are setting up the most, uh, like, I think literature calls it a cruel irony. The idea that Haman has to now honor the person that he wanted to kill, and then he gets killed on the apparatus he set up to kill the guy he just had to honor. Like, it's as bad as it gets. It's the most, like, I don't know what the word is, but, like, the bad guy really gets it in the end. If this was a Hollywood movie, it is, wow, you really got what was coming to you. Now I had to chew on this for a little bit, because this is God's character we're talking about here. This is, uh, this is God... Uh, enacting justice, but like sweetly and almost it's it's violent and it's it's poetic and it's uh, perfect in a sense. And this uh this this is what it speaks to this is what it speaks to me is that this story is God is not just not just making things right. It displays to me His passion for his people and his passion for him fighting on their behalf. And uh, it's not good enough. Like it's not good enough to just, 
to just have it all kind of be swept under the rug. Like, no, it's, it's a, Mordecai needs to be honored by the man who wanted to kill him. Like you see God going, no, no, no. I'm going to make this, not just wipe it out. I'm going to make it right. Like I'm going to flip the whole script. I'm going to change it from the inside out. It's not just going to be better. It's, it's not just going to be swept away. It's going to be inverted. It's going to be transformed. That Mordecai who was, who was, who was on the chopping block is now being paraded through the streets as a hero. And I, I, God, want to see that happen. It's fascinating. So uh, God seems to be really passionate in this story about justice. Saving his people, yes, but also enacting justice also. So this is what I had to kind of chew on as I was reading this story. I was like, okay, so how does this apply to us? What does this matter? I don't I don't know if we have such a clear enemy. <laughs> uh, there's There aren't villains anymore, or so it seems. You know, there aren't Hamans running around. Uh, or at least that's the world I live in. It seems to be that it's hard to find just straight up bad people that are villainous trying to ruin my life. And uh, But then I started thinking and praying and asking God, okay, what? how does this apply to us? And what uh, I was reminded of is this idea that sin is our enemy. Sin is our enemy. And there's a lot of parallels between... Um, uh, you know, Haman wanting to wipe out a people and sin wanting to steal, kill, and destroy us and sever our relationships and and separate us from God. It's actually really sinister. Sin is our mortal enemy, so to speak. So this is what, uh, this is what I, I wanted to just pull out a few observations from this story and sort of draw a parallel between God's passionate justice or his, yeah, his, him enacting passionate justice in the book of Esther, going, okay, Haman's the enemy, wants to kill the Jews, it's very black and white. Um, and now we have this new enemy called our sin and our selfishness. And its plot is equally sinister. It's to eternally separate us from God. And I suppose we could label the enemy, like Satan, as someone who's the, 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 who would whisper lies to us, and would encourage us to sin and would encourage us to fight for the things of this world and to just and to not look beyond. Uh, and so in that way, how does this how does God's passion in this story? How do where do we see God's passion now? Where do we see that playing out now? So there's, there's a few uh, there's a few observations here. And the first one I find really interesting. And uh, kind of coming back to Esther. And what I think is really funny or maybe something that's not talked about a lot is that Esther's faith uh, originates from her impending death. So if we talk about what gets this whole thing started, what gets this whole what gets this whole thing started is Esther has this realization where um, she realizes she's gonna die either way. <laughs> so we're talking about you know God doing 100% of the work and us, responding to that with a hundred percent of our hearts. You know what I think Esther's response is in this moment with a hundred percent of her heart is I don't want to die. <laughs> and we, I, she often gets painted and rightly so as, as a, as a hero who rises to this occasion and she does. But if you look back in the last chapter in chapter four, Haman is, um, Mordecai, sorry, I always flip their names. Mordecai is encouraging Esther by saying, uh, God's going to save his people. You may as well not die. Like, why don't you try? 
<laughs> Why don't you try? Because the king is going to find out and the edict is going to affect you too. So you're going to die either way. What do you have to lose? <laughs> and so that's just kind of a, not a narrative that, that we think of a lot in this story. Of Esther didn't have anywhere to turn. And her faith was built on this idea that it's like, I'm going to die either way. And uh, perhaps that makes her less heroic. I don't think so. I think I think it still takes a lot of courage to do what she did. But how have you ever thought about that? If we're drawing parallels to now, uh, you and I can't save ourselves from our sin. We can't. We we are unable to save ourselves, and uh, the sin that we're born with in our hearts is not fixable by us. And we find ourselves in a very similar situation as Esther, going, uh, well, it looks like I'm gonna have to count on God because I don't wanna die. And maybe that sounds a little dire to you, but I'm, I'm not sure that the parallels are all that drastically different. That what if our faith saves us in some way, in a much more ultimate sense than we'd like to really admit sometimes? I don't know about you, but when I think about faith, I, I think about it as like a, Christianity 2.0, like there's the Christians, but then there's like the really faithful Christians, you know, the ones who like do, do things that are hard or, you know, serve people and volunteer a lot or preach or I don't know what you think Christianity 2.0 is, but it's kind of like, wow, those are the really faith-filled Christians. <laughs> scripturally speaking, and we're going to look at one a little bit later, but scripturally speaking, faith is like the, the first thing of going I've, I'm recognizing that I'm a sinner in need of grace and I need to put my faith in God, not me. Like it's not the 2.0 thing. It is the very beginning. Like I need grace and I need it through faith in him who's better than me, who can actually save me. So uh, I actually think this is beautiful. So I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to give Esther a bad rap here because she reaches out she, in this moment where she says, I'm going to do something, and we just read what she did, um, she steps out in faith and she reaches out and believes a promise in faith that the God of Abraham made a promise to her people. So perhaps, you know, perhaps he'll deliver me. And there's this very courageous moment where she reaches out and believes a promise. And something amazing happens in that moment. She says, I don't want to die. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to die. And so I'm going to reach out to, you know, my God who has made a promise to my people and I'm going to bank on that because I need him to do now everything else. Remember how she, she last week, remember how she said, you know, this is not how it works. Uh, I can't go to the king anymore because I just went there 30 days ago. And by the way, if I go to the court and he doesn't extend his scepter to me, I'm going to die. Like, this is not how this works. But instead she goes, nope. Um, I'm going to step out in faith. And now, now, now God just has to come through because she knows that it's not going to work. And she knows that it's going to be exposing. Now God has to come through with, with his 100% of the deal. So, uh, and this is what we see happen in the story is God takes Esther's little bit of faith to reach out to an ancient promise. And then he goes, perfect. It's all I needed from you. And we've just read God now in a sense, taking over and going, watch me, watch me fix it. 
watch me not only watch me not only get rid of the problem and save my people, but enact justice on your behalf. Watch me elevate watch me not just save your people from death. Watch me put them into positions of affluence. Watch me take a situation and redeem it. And I think that's just amazing. And all Esther did was reach out and believe a promise because she was afraid to die. (laughs) And so you and I have this interesting moment, I think, where are we going to see sin as an enemy that robs us of our lives, of the lives we were intended to have? Both here in the natural, I believe sin really, really breaks relationship here on our time on earth. I, I really do believe that sin destroys. But you know what? Sometimes you can look around and it's not very compelling and some people that... Uh, it's it's even if we're thinking with worldly eyes sin sometimes makes a really good case it does sin has a lot of benefits greed pretty handy actually if you're greedy you can really get somewhere in this life in this life but i think what god would want to say to us this morning is going i wonder what it would look like to put ourselves in esther's shoes of saying i want to live i want to live and i need saving And so I'm going to have faith. And I wonder if this morning we should pause and go and remember the the eternal consequences of the sin that separates separates us from the God we were designed to know. So, of course, the parallels are really handy here where we go, all right, you and I reach out and go, "Uh, I need to repent of my sin that separates me from God because he's perfect and I want to be part of his kingdom. And so we reach out and grab on and then God comes and fulfills that faith and that trust with a hundred percent of his work with a whole bunch of things we can't do. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus comes and takes our faith and he, he turns it into, he redeems us He pays for our sin. He restores us to right relationship. He takes our our genuine 100% wholehearted repentance and faith of going, God, I can't do this and I don't want to die and I want to be with you. (laughs) I need your help. And he goes, amazing, that's all I needed. Watch me now do, (laughs) really do all the work, essentially. I don't know if you notice in this story with Esther, God's doing everything. There's just so much favor on Esther because he's creating all these in behind the scenes plans. The king can't sleep that night. You know, there's all there's just all these things that God starts to do. And thank God, so to speak, that we have Jesus who who fulfilled all this. I'd like to just go uh, briefly through a uh, through a passage of scripture that I think will be helpful to us. And I just wanted to read it slowly together and might underline a few things just to remind us of uh, what being saved by grace through faith really means. And that saved by grace through faith is one of those sentences that's 100, 100% God and 100% man. It's one of those dialectic phrases. And Ephesians 2 does a really great job of kind of unpacking this for us. So this is Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10. And let's just read through this together. <clears throat> As for you... You were dead in your transgressions. So already we see you were dead. This is not some let's have faith because it'll be a a slightly more enriched version of Christianity. This is a, no, 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 your faith, 
Like you were dead before in your transgressions and sins, right? We just talked about sin being the enemy. So sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So this is the enemy. And uh, he is the ruler of the kingdom of this world. And, uh, and this is not the kingdom we want to be a part of. This is not the kingdom we want to be citizens of. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And so what I think of when I think of deserving of wrath is I think God does need to enact justice. You see how passionate God is in this Esther story about enacting justice and seeing what was about to be destroyed, not just not be destroyed, but be elevated to greatness. Uh, he's passionate about justice and we are deserving of his wrath for the sins that we've committed. We, we, we don't belong in his kingdom. But, don't you just love buts in Paul's letters? Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Jesus Christ, in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his, in his kindness to us, in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. And so I just want to highlight this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Try to figure that one out. And I, this is what I feel like is happening in this Esther story. Is she saved by grace, God's passionate desire to save us. Through her faith to remember a covenant. And so, just to be super clear, this is not done by our works so that no one can boast. For God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. So, uh, this is what I this is what I this is what I think we'll we'll end today is that uh, God wants your trust, and He wants you to have faith in Him, so that He can save you, so that He can save you from your sin. And we talk lots about. Uh, being filled with faith in our church and in many churches, we talk a lot about let's let's do faith-filled things. And and I don't know about you, but sometimes when I hear that, I think like, oh, I'm going to do something courageous uh, or I'm going to do something a little out of my comfort zone or uh, believe for something really, really big that maybe I don't necessarily have to. You know, people there's the faith-filled people who are just, you know, they talk big and they talk about saving cities or something. They talk about, use the word movement a lot. I don't know the faithful people, the faith-filled people. Uh, I don't think it's that. Could, of course, it is also. But what if, what if your faith and your trust in the personhood of God uh, is what saves you? And what if the opportunities to be courageous or step out of your comfort zone or 
do the good works God's prepared in us, God's prepared for us in advance to do, or take a leap of faith, or, uh, you know, <laughs> be, to, to walk with him and listen to him and, and, and inquire of the Holy Spirit in moments and wonder what he's up to and, and operate on his economy. What if those things aren't just nice things that we'd love to get around to? What if those acts are how we experience his grace? What if in our trust and our reaching out and going, I know you're there and I know you save and I know you're powerful and I know you want to reconcile us and I know you want to reconcile this world to you. Of course you do. So would you, would you, I want to participate in that so that I can be saved from myself. And so I think about this a lot where we go, oh, uh, I, in that Ephesians chapter uh, verse, it says, you know, we don't want to be submitted to the rulers of this age, of this world, you know, of lies and of, of just thinking about this world only. I want to be submitted to the kingdom of heaven. I want to be submitted to Christ. And so what would a natural byproduct of submission and trust of my king be? It'd probably be living a life of faith. But do you see how living a life of faith is not something you get because you were a Christian for a allotted amount of time and then you did it well and now you're faithful? It's like, no. Uh, your, your, your desire to be faithful is what saves you. And in that trust, you foster a relationship. We talk so much about this idea that trust is the, is the, is, is the, they're the rails that relationship ride on. And so God goes, trust me, have faith. I'm good. I am true. I am worth believing and I'm worth being the anchor of your heart. And I will make a way. You just trust me and I will make a way. Do you think Esther could have planned any of that stuff? I think she could have orchestrated the elevation of Mordecai to where Haman's position was. Like, no, she's just going, I don't want to die. And I know my God saves. And so maybe this morning, uh, maybe God's reminding you that you need saving. We all need saving. Every day we need to be saved. And, uh, and I wonder if he would be inviting you to take courageous steps of faith like Esther did to participate in your salvation, to participate in how not under the authority of this king of the kingdom of this world you are, to prove that, to show that, to walk with him. So I would ask you this morning, where do you need, where do you need saving? Where is, uh, where is sin trying to destroy? Where is sin trying to rob you of relationship? Where is sin trying to rob you of life? Where is sin trying to rob you of relationship and intimacy and closeness with God? I would invite you to uh, let that be, to let that rest on your heart this morning. And we are going to do communion here in a second. And for a moment, perhaps we should pause and recognize the lengths to which Christ went to fulfill our faith in him uh, to to actually redeem us to actually save us and enact justice at the exact same time sin is no small thing Jesus paid with his own life God became man and died the death we should have died that's how big of a deal this is and we look at stories like Esther and go that's pretty extreme hey there's 
people being impaled on poles and there's genocide and there's racism and all these things. Feels distant sometimes, you know, the extremities of the story and the violence and the black and white nature of it all. But I think that these stories are designed to be a foreshadowing of, like, this is nothing in comparison to the damage that sin does with you and I. Eternal separation from God. And look at the lengths that Christ went to to go, trust me, I'm going to do the rest. Have a relationship with me. Be with me. And I'll save you. So, uh, I don't know where you need saving this morning, but it starts right here. (laughs) It starts right here. Going, oh, Father, uh, remind me again uh, how much of a villain sin is in my life so that I understand what I'm about to do right now and I'm under, I understand what I'm about to remember. And so, uh, for those of you who want to participate with us this morning, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to read the classic passage that we always do with this and now's a good time to sort of get out your elements if you'd like to join us. So this is is 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given it, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. So you can take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Something stood out to me as we were reading this. And Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And I think about Esther reaching out and grabbing hold of an old covenant that God made to Abraham. Saying, I will, I will save my people. And I will use my people to save the world. And Jesus says, this is the new covenant. I'm the fulfillment of the old one. Now this is the new one. Nothing can separate us. Not your sin. Nothing can separate us. Faith in me and my name saves. This is the new covenant. And remember me, and remember that. And so this morning, Father, we listen to this story, and we see your passion for saving your people. And God, we remember now that we are that people that you've made a new covenant with in your blood. You made a covenant with us to save us. So, Father, today we remember that. We remember the lengths that you went to. We see the passion in your eyes for us. Your longing to be with us. Father, I pray that you would help us not see our faith as something that's, well, some other thing we need to do, but that that reaching out in that moment when all seems lost, 
reaching out in moments when maybe things seem fine and the apathy of this world has grabbed hold of us by the throat. That we remember, no, you are the only one who saves. And Father, I thank you that it's not by our works and that you did the whole thing, just like you orchestrated this whole plan in Esther and that you blew her away, I'm sure, with how, how much you change things. You invert them, you redeem them, you transform them. And God, I choose to remember this morning that you've chosen to redeem and renew my heart. And all I get to do is trust you. All I get to do is reach out and remember this new covenant in your blood. Thank you for who you are. And we choose you this morning, Lord. We choose you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we worship, we're going to be singing a song called Waymaker. And uh, I'm excited to sing this with all of you. And I think it's an important reminder that we uh, have a God who's always working, even when we don't see it that he makes a way, and that he keeps his promises. And this covenant, this is a promise to you, that Jesus saves and he redeems and he renews for eternity. And so let's worship a God who deserves to be worshipped for what he's done.